Oh, shoot. Somebody was ready. How are y'all? <laughs> it is uh, good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, man, this is a, a good, a good uh, look right here. Just as I'm looking at all the gifts, okay, just out of sheer curiosity, how many of you all have finished with your Christmas shopping already? Raise your hands. Okay, okay, about a third of the room. How many of y'all are like halfway done? Like you're kind of like in between, okay, a good portion. How many of y'all have not even started yet? My people, that's what I like, all right? That's right. Hey, we're like, hey, we know, we know that Amazon has two-day shipping, right? Like, all right, <laughs> well, good deal, good deal. Uh, man, it is really, really good. Just as a quick, uh, just little update, just so that we all know, um, Campbell uh, is a school that, uh, generally speaking, uh, the students are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and so the ability to actually uh, bless them with gifts is a huge piece of it. You guys know, uh, if you grew up with Christmas, that it was just a great time as a kid to get to wake up, run out front, have gifts, and things like that, and some of our students don't get the opportunity to actually uh, have that and partake in that, and so, um, man, this is a way that we get to just serve them and to love them. Uh, is by giving gifts to the students. And so thank you so much, everybody who gave to that. Um, just as a quick little small side update as well, uh, Redeemer um, Presbyterian, which meets actually just a few streets over from we, where we are, also has helped partner with us uh, within this. And so uh, together, collectively, we think that we'll have somewhere around 215 gifts, and there are 190 students. So they're all covered. All right, praise Jesus, okay? And so that's just a huge, huge, Choose like blessing, and the students and their teachers actually said that uh, what they can do with this now is that they can actually uh, uh, use those uh, extra gifts that the students don't get as kind of incentives throughout the year and to bless the kids as the year goes on. So, man, thank you guys so much just for your service there and just a huge blessing. All right. Um, really quickly, before we dive into the sermon, I told y'all back in November that every time I preach, uh, I want to give a little bit of an update on two services. Uh, and so I want to go ahead and do that and just continue to set our pace as to why we made that decision, different uh, directions, things like that. So one of the things that we were most excited about when uh, deciding, yes, let's go ahead and move to two services as a church, is that what that does is it allows us to create more space for people to be able to come in and worship where they may not have been able to in the past, okay? And so I know it doesn't fully seem like it today uh, because it is getting close to break. Half our students are gone. There's also a wedding happening right now where literally about 30 of our people are at Chris and Kelsey's wedding. And yet and still, we're pretty full, right? And so uh, the fact that already we're still kind of cramming in, that means we need space, but we get to create space for more people. And so that's one of the things that we're most excited about is that, man, there are just different options now for people to attend worship. Um, one of the things that we did in the survey back in uh, September that we sent out is out of everybody who said that they do not currently attend the well, 84% of them said they would consider attending if we had two different service times, okay? Now, let's be real. I would consider just about anything, all right? And so we know it doesn't mean a whole lot, right? But what we do know is that, man, just different times, particularly for parents, gives good options and uh, just the ability to reach more people. And so you'll hear that all the time is that we want to really focus on community and yet still continue to reach people as a whole and be missional and multiply as a church. All three of those things are going to be really intentionally happening this year. And so I have great news and announcement in a few weeks 
just about the multiplication of what it means to be a body as the well. Uh, we have uh, different uh, community groups that we're starting and planting, and we're doing group connect and stuff so that we can stay small as we grow big, and just the ability to grow to reach more people is a huge, huge piece of that. And so God has given us a great uh, time in the church and a great momentum within that time to really begin to see something powerful happen in this side of Austin, in this city where uh, it has not as much in the past. And so um, praise God for that. And so my encouragement to you would be uh, twofold. One of them would be come to church. All right. When we shift, all right, if there's 250 people right now, do the math. That means that if we just stay where we are, there would be uh, 125 people at both services. That will feel very different, right? But if everybody shows up every week, then we'll actually have about 400 people that call the well their home that attend at least once a month. And so if everybody shows up, we have 200, and then we got to think about space, which is great because then it pushes us into that. And so show up, but also invite people. There's going to be space created where people may not have in the past. And so, uh, man, we just are really excited about what God is doing within that, and we really think this will be an opportunity for God to catapult our church where we can multiply like crazy, y'all. Like, like we get the opportunity to literally multiply as a body as God allows us to reach more people, and so that's our hope kind of behind all of this, all right? And so um, that is uh, one of the things that we're doing, one of the ways that we're going, all right? We go with that? That was actually me just trying to catch up where I'm at in my notes. Okay, here we go. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to start off in John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, ushers will be coming forward now. And if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. Um, we would love for you to have that. Um, if you do not own a Bible, would you please keep that? Uh, that's our gift to you. We want you to have the word. Uh, you can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the YouVersion app underneath the tab section, click on the well, uh, and you'll be able to follow along there. You can also take this link, put it right into your browser. There's the notes. All the scriptures will be there. And so uh, we say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word, all right? We really do believe that these are God's words written to us, and they communicate to us that this is God trying to talk to us, trying to talk to our heart. And so, man, we don't want uh, what I'm saying up here to get convoluted with what the word says. So, man, keep your eyes on the word, and let's let God's word speak to us this morning. Amen? All right, so we are on our third week of Advent, and we're focusing specifically this morning on joy. So joy is an interesting topic because I think that joy is one of those things that a lot of people kind of assume that they understand, but they may not actually have a full conceptual grasp on what joy is. I wouldn't be so quick to apply the title of understanding onto us as quickly as a lot of us would be. The word joy in the Bible is actually used 203 times, very interestingly the command to rejoice is actually uh, 202 times in the Bible. Those two words almost very rarely attend in the same verse. And so it's not like it says joy, rejoice. Like these are separate commands. And so in the Bible holistically, the command to rejoice or the idea of joy is used 405 times. That's a lot of times, right? In fact, last night, I went into my daughter's room and said, this is the 405th time I told you to stop talking and go to sleep. That's a lot, right? Like you feel it very heavily. And so, man, joy is used just all throughout the scripture over and over again. And the command of joy, and there are all these other words that are connected to it, like gladness or happiness and things like that. And so we see it all throughout the scripture. Joy is a fruit of the spirit, right? Love, joy, 
peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Like, so joy is the second fruit of the Spirit that's mentioned, and the Bible actually commands us, y'all, to walk in that fruit of the Spirit. And so it commands us to have joy. It says, take off the flesh, the old man, and put on the Spirit. And what does the Spirit look like? One of the things is actually joy. We see God rejoicing all throughout the Scriptures. God is a joyful God who loves to rejoice over his people. And so joy is actually necessary for the Christ follower because God is literally rejoicing himself and, don't miss this, God himself is joy. Okay? God himself is joy. The fruit of the Spirit, who the Spirit is, is love, joy. We see that God is love, 1 John 4. God is also joy as we look at that. And so literally as the Christian, the Holy Spirit comes, dwells inside of us. And what happens at that point is that there is an opportunity for us to embrace joy where there was not before. However, most of us do not necessarily walk in joy continually. In fact, I would say that we often confuse joy and happiness. In fact, I would even go as far to say is that at times, happiness actually becomes the enemy of joy. Okay? Happiness actually becomes the enemy of joy. For example, why is it that we have to have the newest smartphone right? If we look at the four Advent themes, we think about them. Do we buy the newest smartphone so that we can have a sense of peace? Okay, maybe just slightly, but that's probably not the main motivation. Or so that when we get the new smartphone, we just, we feel so loved, right? Probably not. Or so that hope, like, man, we just have all this hope all of a sudden and and hope in humanity and hope for our life gets restored when we get the new phone, right? Probably not. What we're actually searching for is this idea of joy, of happiness. We want to be satisfied, to have gladness in our life and in our heart. And then what happens is, is that we buy the iPhone, realize its inferiority to the galaxy, and then we end up being sad, right? Okay. And so, amen, right? Preach it, (laughs) all right? Right? Hey, why do we do vacations? Okay, is it for love? Is it for hope? Or is it probably more so a product of joy is what we're looking for? Why do we buy the cars that we have? Why do we uh, 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 indulge in the entertainment that we do? It's usually not those other three things. It's us kind of looking for joy. And so while none of these things are bad things in and of themselves, they can't give us what we actually crave. In fact, we crave those things as a product of what God himself has hardwired within us. And this is this desire to have joy, to to have more than what we have in this world. We know that there's something missing. And so for a lot of us, rather than finding it in the person who can actually give us joy, God himself, we look into all these other things to try to satisfy this internal craving that God has literally placed inside of us for us to seek him and who he is. And so then we end up thinking, well, if I get this relationship, I will finally have joy. If I land this job, then I will finally have joy. If I, you know, get these these things, whatever they may be, then I will finally have joy. And once again, none of those things are bad. But if we allow those things to usurp our affections for Jesus, then what happens is, is this pursuit of happiness becomes an enemy to our joy. Joy and happiness, they may be kind of loosely related. They're like third cousin once removed, right? But they are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. And so before we dive into scripture, I want us to have the right framework around what we're talking about, okay? Joy is not an emotion, all right? You following that? 
Joy is not an emotion. Now, joy can definitely produce emotions. It can produce the emotion of happiness or of gladness or of cheerfulness or whatever it may be, but it is not an emotion per se, all right? Looked at several different Bible dictionaries. All of them uniformly agreed on this. And so let me say it again. We're not talking about happiness today, okay? We're talking about joy. Those two things are very different. Happiness is a a dim shadow of the joy that Christ would have for us. Happiness is a stream compared to the Niagara Falls of joy that is set forth for the Christian. And so these things are very different. But we also know that we do not fully feel this joy at all times. That there is something that kind of prevents us from receiving that joy the way that God would have from us. This world can kind of bear its weight on us and steal joy from us, can it not? This world can press down and we can forget that we have access to something that is so deep that nothing can actually deter us. But what happens is is we focus on these momentary afflictions and they actually deter us away from the joy that God would have set for us. Just this week as I'm meeting with different people, I met with somebody who uh, lost a family member that was extremely, extremely close to them way before the time that they were supposed to go. I met with a person whose wife has recently had a miscarriage. I met with another person who's wrestling with some confusion in a romantic relationship, another person who just lost a job, another person who is wrestling with depression and suicidal thoughts, and this is just this week, meetings this week right? So I have no idea what you came in here carrying, but if that is indicative of what's happening in a lot of our lives, like the world can press its weight against us, and it is an enemy to our joy. It tries to steal our joy. In fact, the enemy himself comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and what is he doing? He's trying to steal, kill, and destroy what God has laid out for us, one of those things being joy, And so God is fighting for our joy, but everything else is fighting against it. And it's easy for us to fall on the wrong side or to look for momentary satisfactions like happiness. And so here's what I hope to do today, okay? I hope to just kind of gaze at the scriptures for a few moments and that we would be able to see what God has intended for us and that it would start to stir up our affections. They would start to stir up this thing that God has laid out for us, that being joy. And so uh, John 16 is where we're going to kick off today. And I hope that we pursue our joy even over our happiness, okay? That's what I hope today. So John chapter 16, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. Jesus is in the middle of an idea here, and he tells his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And so here we go. Jesus immediately says, look, this life isn't going to be easy, right? In fact, in this context with the disciples, what he's talking about is Jesus is about to be unjustly betrayed, and he's about to be crucified on a cross. The disciples are going to lose their best friend, who they also believe to be Savior. And Jesus says, this will bring great sorrow. They will suffer loss. Jesus immediately said, hey, look, sorrow will fill, but your sorrow will turn into joy, okay? Now remember, joy is not an emotion, all right? So what Jesus is not saying is that when I resurrect, you're going to be like a little child on Christmas morning, right? Buddy the elf, 
That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you're going to feel all this happiness. They may have felt happiness for a moment, but what he's saying is, is that you will have something that cannot be taken away from you, right? He said that. Joy, this joy that will overwhelm. It'll be something different than you're used to. It won't just be happiness. It will be this overwhelming comfort of joy that will be placed inside of your hearts. When a woman gives birth, Jesus uses this analogy, she does not always have the emotion of happiness, amen? Right? The men were like, amen. Y'all don't know. <laughs> right? But it's true. We can see it, you know. And even as that child grows up, right, that child does not always produce happiness. In fact, there are times where you wonder if you made a godly and right decision in having that kid in the first place. Right? But that child does always produce joy. There's something about that child where we rejoice over it always, where even at the toughest times, there is something that cannot be removed from the parent that's literally kind of hardwired into us in this mysterious way. And Jesus refers that to the relationship that we should have with him, that even though there will be anguish at times, even though the world will try to take our joy away from us, they will try to push sorrow on us, that we can be just like the woman just like the parent who has a child where, no, 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 this cannot be shaken even during the hard times, that joy is ours. This is what God has for us. This is what he would do. It has now been interwoven into our new man DNA that we would have joy. This is what Christ longs for. In fact, this is part of what Christ paid for on the cross, is access to our joy continually. And so kind of to give a quick definition so we know where we're going today, all right, joy is a state of being that the Christian encounters as they know and experience Christ, okay? Joy, it's a state of being, not just an emotion, all right, that the, that the Christian experiences or encounters as they know and experience Christ. There is hope within it. There's a knowing what we already have but not yet fully have, what will come to be in the future and what we can taste in fragments here. It overcomes sorrow because we know that this world is not all that there is, that there's another world coming, that this world is but a, a momentary blip on the radar, and that one day as we stand with Christ 35,000 years from now, that we'll look back and we won't even really remember what happened on this world. That is what begins to produce joy, right? I once heard a pastor say that we'll be in heaven kind of talking to each other, and somebody will say, do you remember earth? And the other person will say, yeah, you know, I think I owned a red hat. Like, that's what we'll remember, okay? It'll be so far removed from where we have been for the past 35,000, 100,000, for the rest of eternity that, man, what is this? This can produce joy because we know there's something more. Keep reading and uh, go back one chapter in, in John chapter 15. In verse 11, Jesus says this to them. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so Christ longs for our joy. He even speaks to us. He commands things to us that we would have more joy. Now, ironically, in John 15, what the context is, is Jesus is talking about pruning them, which pruning, if you are not a gardener, is cutting away the dead stuff from the tree. And Jesus says, I will prune you. I tell you these things so that you may have full joy, okay? Who in here thinks pruning is a fun thing to receive? 
right? No, it's not fun. That's not what Jesus is saying. It may not even produce happiness, but I'm doing it. I'm telling you these things. I want you to know I am for your joy. I want the joy that I have to be placed inside of you, so I'm going to remove the old man and put on the new man that you may have joy. Christ is literally, listen, look at what that text is. He is fighting for our joy. He longs for our joy, In fact, a lot of us have a bad misconception of God is that we think that he's kind of a killjoy. And the exact opposite is true. God is for our joy. The only reason he even lines up these rules is so that we can actually have more joy because he knows that certain things will steal joy from us. Just like as a parent would line up rules that the child sometimes doesn't like, right? Like, can I please have a fourth cookie? No, child, You may think this will produce joy, but tomorrow you will be throwing up, which is not joyful, right? And so we instruct, we we commit rules so that they will have more joy. This is God to us, and we are wicked parents. And so if we understand that, then how much more God? He is for our joy. He fights for our joy. One of the most joyful people that I know is actually my granny. In fact, it was one of the things that kind of actually repelled me from Christ for a while, ironically, and then drew me to Christ later on. Because this woman is literally always happy. Literally. Always. Forever. Never not happy, okay? I would be going through something. She would have like a flat tire. She'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, see, Satan trying to get me today. And she'd be going out, and she's like excited changing her tire, right? And she has this joy that's within her. I used to hate it because I'd be like, why are you so happy? This is not a happy moment, right? But there was a joy that was welled up inside of her that even when I can see there was sorrow in her heart, there was still joy overflowing that sorrow, As I came to Christ, I recognized that's because she's walking really closely with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Henry uh, Nguyen says this, Joyful persons do not necessarily make jokes, laugh, or even smile. They are not people with an optimistic outlook on life who always revitalize the seriousness of a moment or event. No, joyful persons see with open eyes the hard reality of human existence and at the same time are not imprisoned by it. They have no illusion about the evil powers that roam around looking for someone to devour, but they also know that death has no final power. They suffer with those who suffer, yet they do not hold on to suffering. They point beyond it to an everlasting peace. In fact, what God wants to do is he wants to introduce the non-believer to joy because outside of Christ, because God is joy, the most satisfying thing we can feel is extreme happiness, but there's something that actually goes far beyond that is the joy of the Lord. And for the believer, he wants to illuminate that joy in our life, to stretch our ability to receive that joy. This is one of God's goals for us, Our, 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 our taste buds cannot be exaggerated enough for the joy of the Lord, right? We cannot consume it enough. In fact, if you flip over real quick to 1 Peter chapter 1, um, and in verse 8, Peter says this, which I think is just a fascinating, um, a fascinating sentence here. 1 Peter 1, 8, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him, And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible. I cannot put into words that cannot be expressed the joy that the Christian is able to receive. In fact, this whole sermon is worthless because words don't do joy justice. 
right? That's what Peter is kind of saying. How can you, how can you expound on? You cannot exaggerate the joy that is found in Christ. It is inexpressible. It cannot be described fully. This is what Christ has for us. How can you describe something that's not even a feeling, yet at the same time it's far more tangible and and palpable even than a feeling itself? Like how can you begin to describe those things? You know, it's kind of like when people are like, hey, how do you know when the Lord talks to you? How do you hear him? It's kind of like, well, you hear him in your heart. It's like, what the heck does that mean, <laughs> right? Like, like, you don't physically hear, but you internally hear, but you know it's not just like your own voice or something different, and this is kind of what it means to have joy. It can't really be described. When I watch my granny suffer, I realize there's something different that she's pursuing. I can't really describe it. It's inexpressible, and yet there's this joy overwhelming, right? Now, how many people in here would say, nah, don't give me that. I'm fine with fleeting happiness, Right? Any takers? Right? No. We know in our hearts there is something that is yelling at us at all times that you were made for something more than what you have right in front of you right now. You were made for something far greater. You were made to experience this joy that you cannot even explain. And our hearts know that. In fact, the Westminster Confession kind of picked this up. This is a, 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 a Christian creed of sorts, a catechism, and it may be one of the most famous ones. And the first question the confession asks is, what is the chief end of man? Okay, Why does man exist? What were we created for? Why are we here on earth? Why did God create us in the first place? And the answer to that, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever to have joy, to be in joy with God forever. This is literally why we exist, to make much of Jesus and at the same time to marvel in his presence that it would fill us up with something that is beautiful and profound. This is why our hearts crave joy so much and why we literally get depressed when we cannot find joy. In fact, that's why countries with so many things, like America, actually find themselves always among the top list of countries for that of depression because we try to find this idea of joy and other things that are here right in front of us, not realizing that they cannot give us what our hearts actually crave. In fact, every single time somebody goes to a third world country, the number one thing that you hear when they come back is, I just don't understand. They were so joyful and they didn't have anything. Wrong. They had everything. It's us who are lacking. We have all these gadgets and all these things to try to satisfy, but it only gives us momentary happiness. They have nothing to lean on. They can't lean on their gadgets or their games or their entertainment, and so they have to find joy, the only place where it is found, except that's the only place that actually has joy, so they have everything, which is probably why Jesus said, blessed are the poor. They recognize it more, right? And so this is why we so often fall into this state of anxiety, of depression, is that we're looking for things to satisfy and is not found outside of Christ because Christ himself is joy. And if we do not hold on to Christ, then we cannot experience this joy to the fullness. And so what happens is, is one of two things. We either kind of suppress this desire that we have for joy And this is what actually a lot of us do without realizing it. And let me just say really directly, friends, you are far too easily satisfied. I see it all the time. You are far too easily satisfied. We get satisfied in the most small, ridiculous things. 
when Christ has hardwired you, you feel it if you allow your soul to wake up and scream at you a little bit. You recognize that you were made for so much more than what is right here in front of us right now. And so what happens is, is because we don't want to wrestle with that, then we kind of suppress that feeling. We just get far too easily satisfied. Or on the other end, we kind of long and search and search and we don't know where to find it. And it literally begins to drive us into depression. At times it drives us into insanity as we look and look and look and cannot find. And we usually find ourselves on one of these two extremes. I myself know I am so easily satisfied When I recognize and understand that the joy that is to be ours in Christ, may I do not fight for it the way that Scripture commands me to. I get satisfied so easily. A lot of us fall into depression. So what do we do? Okay, How is it that we get this joy? What does it mean to fight for our joy in Christ? What are we supposed to be striving for? How do we even know if we've found it? Right? Like, like what does it look like? Okay, Flip back into the Old Testament in Psalms. In Psalm chapter 16, There's this beautiful passage that David is writing here. And in Psalm 16, I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. He says this. I have set the Lord always before me. You hear that? I have set the Lord always. He's always in front of me. He's always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoice. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I freaking love that verse. In fact, can we do something really weird? Can we read verse 11 out loud together? Yeah, okay, ready? You make known to me. Ah! That's what that verse makes you want to do, right? Let's go, right? This is so good, right? Listen, friends, how do we get that, okay? Like, like how is it that we uh, 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 consume that joy? If this is what our hearts are longing for, if this is what we were made to walk in, how do we find that? Well, we do exactly what we were created to do. We draw our joy from God. And this comes, friends, from what? From being in God's presence, This is how we receive joy. This is why we so often talk about spending time in God's word. Because in God's word is where God most regularly speaks to us. And as we spend time in the scriptures, then God is able to speak to our hearts. And as he speaks to our hearts, he begins to stir up our affections. And as he stirs up our affections, then we get this joy that is inexplainable, that that cannot fully be described. But we know it when we feel it. There's something deeper there. Right? This is why I've been loving, by the way, the Advent Devo. All y'all who wrote for it, man, thank you. It's been super fire, right? Like, I've really been receiving a lot from it. And so as we allow God to speak to us like we are, say, through those passages, every day for the past 21 days, I've been reading, Christ will return, Christ will return, Christ will return, Christ will return. I'm like, man, Christ is going to come back, y'all. Right? And I'm excited about that. There's joy in my heart through that because I'm recognizing it, right? This happens as we spend time in God's word. When we are in prayer with God, we allow him to speak to us and us to him. This does something puts us in the presence of God. 
when we go to church, we see the face of God and the people that we are interacting with, or we get to use our gifts to serve God and to build up his kingdom in these beautiful ways, in these really tangible ways as the body comes together and rejoice at who God is, right? This is why it's so important to be here, right? When we meditate or when we fast, or when we fellowship with one another, or when we evangelize, when we share the gospel with other people, or when we uh, uh, give, or when we serve, or when we partake in baptism or communion like we will later, or when we uh, uh, be silent, or when we sing songs of praise, like all of these things actually places us into the presence of God. In fact, why do you think there are so many different means of grace, or, or spiritual disciplines, most people call them? Why is there so many ways for us to connect with God? Could it be that God is trying to find any single way in every single one of our hearts to allow us to come into his presence? Like, you ever find it amazing that it's not just by reading the Bible that we see the presence of God? Because some of y'all are like, look, I can't read. I hate reading, <laughs> right? Okay, that's fine. Well, then you have prayer. Some of y'all are like, man, I just can't focus. I can't. That's great. We have singing. Some of y'all are like, I just can't do worship, right? That's great. We have fellowship. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. God has opened up so many doors. And in fact, when we begin to fight for the things that are most unnatural to us, then we actually have the opportunity to be in the presence of God more. Like, your boy hates silence and solitude, all right? Literally, being silent and solitude is the exact opposite of who God's created me to be. And so when I sit down and just try to listen to the Lord, what ends up happening is I listen to myself 97.8% of the time, right? It's hard for me, but as I try to get in the presence of God every single time, I spend an extended time doing that, every time he speaks to me, even if it's just in tiny, small ways, and what do I receive from that? Joy. Listen, there have been times that he's rebuked me in those moments very aggressively, and what do I feel at that time? Joy as he prunes me away and makes me more like him so that I can receive him more and more, right? Now, for sure, okay, let's not be foolish. You'll read the Bible nine times and you'll only get something out of it two times. We know that, right? That's, we're, we're, we're not in the presence of God yet. It is only impartial that we receive God. We do not receive the fullness of him yet. And so that does not mean that we should not continually fight for that, though, to try to be in the presence of God where the fullness of joy is. This is what we were created for, even if we only get it in fragments. The fragments are still beautiful. I was thinking about that last week. We, uh, we went to Uchi for my birthday, okay? And, uh, ooh, yeah. I'm like, y'all are paying him too much, all right? Somebody paid for me. <laughs> and so we went, and it was awesome, okay? It was really, really good. And then I went home, and I ate a bowl of cereal because that is not enough food. <laughs> I was literally still hungry, right? And what I thought about as I was preparing the sermon this week is I was like, yo, that's just kind of like what it is in the presence of God right now, right? Like, we receive these little tastes of him, and we're like, oh, it's so good. But then we know there's not enough. Like, like there's more to be had, and we feel it, so we're still hungry. This is how God designed you because he's trying to tell you that this earth is not your home, that one day you'll get to go and you'll get to eat from the presence of God forever. You'll get to taste and see forever that the Lord is good. And the more you taste of him, the more you want of him. And the more you want of him, the more joy that you have. And this is a beautiful cycle that God has rigged in your favor. As we seek the Lord, we have to fight to get to know him, not just think good thoughts about God, but literally to know him because we can be in the presence of God. As I go back to my granny, one of the most joyful people that I know, okay, I remember one of the things that stood out to me is that she would read her Bible every single night. Literally, there was never a night where I did not see her reading her Bible. 
And one day, I was about eight or nine, and I walked in, and she has her little highlighter spread out on the bed, and her pens and pencils, and her Bible looks like a rainbow, right? And I'm like, hey, how many times have you read the Bible? She was like, ah, I don't know, like 80, 90? And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> 80 or 90? I was like, aren't you bored? She was like, no, it gets better every single time I read it. Oh, like, that doesn't make any sense, and I left, right? But now that I'm a believer, how true is that? You know that you'll read a passage, and then you'll read it again and again and again, and then the 17th time you read it, you're like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. God is trying to speak to us. He's trying to give us joy. We have to fight to be in the presence of God. We have to fight to know him. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who's at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. In Jesus, there is pleasure to be had forevermore. This is what God has created you for, to breathe him in, literally to be in his presence. This is what God has designed for you. We experience something far deeper than happiness when we look beyond happiness to satisfy, but when we look for joy. This, friends, is what you've been created for. And this is how we can actually know that this is true, okay? This level of joy that we're talking about. We can believe this to be true literally because of this verse right here. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. But friends... Who in here thinks they deserve to be in God's presence? Anybody? Do you deserve to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God? No. And so how is it that in his presence there is fullness of joy, and yet we ourselves do not deserve to be in that presence? Well, that's where the beauty of the gospel comes in, friends. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, is Jesus coming down to be born of a man. As Jesus comes, Luke chapter 2, verse 10 says that he comes to uh, bring great news, and the King James says glad tidings. The ESV says joy, right? He comes to bring us joy. This is why the, the, the child was born. It is a child of joy, and that as we look upon that child of joy, we ourselves receive joy. But Jesus did not stay a baby, but became a man. And as he grew up, he was a, a perfect man who lived his life to utter perfection and yet got unjustly tried and put on a cross, the scripture says, for our sins. And as Jesus is on that cross, what do we see? What is one of the most evident things that we see? It's that Jesus lost all joy. As Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a joyful moment, friends. The man who has pleasures in and of himself, the very God who is joy himself, gets stripped away from this joy. Why? So that those of us who do not deserve to taste even fragments of this joy may have this joy welling up in us forever if we believe in him. This is what the gospel tells us. That Jesus became a man, that him who was at the right hand of the Father came down to dwell among us, that Jesus, though he should have been forever joyful, suffered agony, so that we who should suffer nothing but, nothing but agony will one day have joy forever. Jesus comes and he lives a life that we couldn't, that we may experience joy. This is the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus allows us access to joy forever because he paid for our sorrows, because he paid for our grief. Because he himself was grief-stricken so that we may receive joy everlasting. So that we can maintain this joy now through the ups and downs, through the highs and the lows, through the hills and the valleys, through the trials. Why? Because we know this earth is not our home. There is something more coming. 
There is something more beautiful that lies ahead for us. We can have joy forever, friends. This is why we love Jesus so much because he became empty so that you may be full. And that as you believe in Jesus, what happens is God takes on your sorrows. He says, cast your cares onto me. Cast your anxieties on me. I care for you. I care for you. I love you. And Jesus wants to give us back the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. And he wants to impart this into us forever. Here's one thing that we know, though. This Advent series, we haven't just been focusing on the first coming of Jesus, right? But we've actually been focusing on the second coming, our current Advent, that we know that one day Jesus will come again, that all these little fragments that we taste, these, these small porcels, the portions that, that God has given to us, that one day we will have it in full. So not only did the cross of Christ create space for us to have joy now, even though we only may experience it in shadows, we know that one day we'll have joy forever. I want to end just reading this verse for us. Go to Isaiah chapter 65. In Isaiah chapter 65, he's telling a prophecy about what it will look like one day. And this is where we are right now, in between the first and second coming of Christ, in between his original birth to when he will finally come back and establish rule and reign forever. We read this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Y'all, can we rejoice at that for a second? All the things that weigh you down right now, they won't even come to mind, right? Like you won't even remember them, the scripture says. Why? But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. Look at this. Rejoice, be glad, gladness, joy, goodness. We see over and over what God has intended for us as people. This is why we crave it. Because this is what we were made for. One day, gosh, friends, you will be in the presence of joy forever. This is what our hearts were made for. This is the hope that we have as Christians. And so I pray that as we remember Christ this Advent season, and as we remember what he did for us, that we would recognize we can have joy forever because of the blood spilled, but that we would not stop there, that one day Christ will come and reign again. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. And that as he comes, we will have joy forever. Friends, I sincerely mean this. I long to just rejoice forever with you guys. I long for that day. One day there will be no more tears. There will be no more meetings about sorrow. We will only meet and expound upon the beauty of our king. And we will worship together forever. And we'll eat food that's way better than Uchi. <laughs> I love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you for this joy. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the very incarnation of joy. You are joy. You are joy. You are joy. 